Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Harbin here with you. It just took off my mask. I'm literally wearing a mask in the house. I've got this uh, Can95 mask, and at the end of the show yesterday, my lungs were gone and my throat was gone, and uh, Louise and I have been wearing a mask in the house here in Portland, Oregon. This is a well-insulated house. We've been running the uh, air conditioner and the heat back and forth because on air conditioning, because the coils get moist, it you know catches some of the little particles and cleans the air a little bit in the house. But it's still, this is incredible. Our air quality here. Keep in mind, uh, anything over 50 is considered dangerous. Anything over 100 is considered hazardous. We're at 440 right now. Parts that's parts per cubic liter of air, uh, which is just incredible. So what we're seeing right now, from the wildfires to the hurricanes on the Gulf Coast to denying climate science, I mean, you know, just right across the board, the destruction of our public schools, it's all the logical extension of Ronald Reagan's policies that were put into place in 1980 and we never left. We are still in the Reagan era. We are 40 years into it and uh, or arguably 39 years into it. And the experiment is killing us. And I'll get into that in more detail in just a minute. Did Trump show up or order an indoor rally in Nevada because he has a death wish? Or is he just wishing death on his followers? Because he came right out and said, I'm not worried because I'm far away from the crowd. I mean, he was specifically asked that and he specifically said, I'm far away from the crowd. I don't worry about it so much. That's mind boggling. All this right-wing media is talking about, you know, Rush Limbaugh yesterday, oh, it's the chickification of America, Daily Caller talking about the sissification, basically, uh, you know, uh, Democrats are sissies. They, don't, they, want, they want to wear masks. They want to hide. They're, they're, they're like scared little girls. This is the new meme that they're promoting in right-wing media. And, of course, it's going to kill a bunch of people. But, you know, that doesn't matter. Over on Reddit, this, this was floating all over the internet a week or so ago, and it's, it's, worth, it's worth sharing. The original person who posted it on Reddit was called Sty in your eye, S-T-Y in your eye. And he said, you don't get it. I live in Trump country in the Ozarks in southern Missouri, one of the last places where the Klan still has a relatively strong established presence. They don't give a damn what he does. 
He's just something to rally around and hate liberals. That's it. Period. If you keep getting caught up in why do they not realize blah, 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 and how can they still back him, blah, 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 you are not understanding what is the underlying motivating factor of his support. It's screwing liberals, owning liberals. That's pretty much it. Have you noticed he can do pretty much anything imaginable and they'll explain some way that rationalizes it that makes zero logical sense? Because they're not even keeping track of any logical narrative. It's irrelevant. Owning liberals is the only relevant thing. Trust me, I know firsthand what I'm talking about. He says, look at the thing with not wearing the mask. I can tell you what that's about. It's about exposing fear. They're playing chicken with nature. And whoever flinches just move down their internal pecking order one step closer to being a liberal. You got to understand the one core value that they hold above all others is hatred for what they consider weakness. Because that's what they believe strength is. Hatred for weakness. And I mean passionate, sadistic hatred. And I'm not exaggerating. Believe me, sadistic, passionate hatred. And that's that's what they think proves that they're strong. They're passionate hatred for weakness. Sometimes they lump in vulnerability, a compromised circumstance, or an overwhelming circumstance in with their weakness, too, because people tend to start humbling themselves when they're in those circumstances, and that's an obvious sign of weakness. Kindness equals weakness. Honesty equals weakness. Compromise equals weakness. They consider their very existence to be superior in every way to anyone who doesn't hate weakness as much as they do. They consider liberals to be weak people who are inferior, almost a different species. And the fact that liberals are so weak is why they have to unite in large numbers, which they find disgusting, but it's that disgust that is the true expression of their natural superiority. He wraps it up. He says, go ahead and try to have a logical, rational conversation with them, though. Just keep in mind what I said here and think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is what's going on. It's amazing. Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to KPFK. Hey, is your air breathable yet? No, it's not. I'm looking out the window here. I can't see more than maybe 300 yards. That's no, too bad. We came down. We're, we're still over 300 parts per million yeah. here in Portland. Oh, 300 parts per whatever it is, you know, per cubic liter. Well, be that as it may, the reason I called was the institution of the Trump death clock, which for those who haven't heard of it, is a a display in Times Square, New York, and you can set one up in your own town that shows the number of deaths they attribute to Trump's incompetence and slowness in getting launched on COVID-19. And they're very generous to Trump in, in the estimates they make. But the number they have up now, when I looked last, is in the range of a about 50% of the Americans killed by Adolf Hitler in World War II. And it seems that as bad as that is, in terms of the rate, the average deaths per day in World War II of American service persons was 220. And currently under COVID-19, the number is 935. So Trump is a much faster acting agent than Hitler was in terms of killing Americans. In fact, since I can't afford or would take the risk of putting up my own Trump death claw in the front yard, I wore this shirt out, which is pre-printed and then says, you know, Trump death clock, today's toll, and then put a strip of uh, adhesive tape across there and write on the number. 
and on the back there is a, a picture of Trump doing the scally face, and across the top it says, Death to America, Trump 2020. And that got a couple of comments yesterday. One person found it greatly amusing. In any event, if we were considering this a sporting contest, and you had one side that scored seven points, and a competitor scored 597 points, you would tend to figure that the person that scored seven was either incompetent or not trying. And if we go to compare two countries in this way, uh, say U.S., number of deaths per million from COVID-19 since the 20th of January is 597. South Korea is seven. So now all of this is incredible unless you adopt the attitude that maybe Trump really is just what he might seem to be, an agent of Lucretia Putin. And any damage that's done to this country or its status in the world is strictly along the lines of what he was hired to do. Well, we definitely and seriously have a problem if it's true that Donald Trump and, and Scott Atlas are pursuing a herd immunity strategy for the United States. You know, particularly given that we've got this guy in Las Vegas now who got a second infection that, that hospitalized him as a result of having first been infected with the Asian strain of the coronavirus and then infected with the European strain four months later. I mean, that's, that's, that, you know, this is like, that means that it's like the coronavirus that is the common cold. It mutates and you don't transfer protections. Mike, thanks for the call. So Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, is tweeting about how it took eight days for a member of her family to get a COVID test back. And during that time, that person, who it turns out was positive, they didn't know for eight days, that person infected three other people in their family. Had they simply known, they could have quarantined that person. Even Mick Mulvaney, you know, right-wing crazy, former Tea Party congressman, you know, acolyte of the Koch brother. Even Mick Mulvaney is saying this is unacceptable during a pandemic when his own kids couldn't get tested, or one of his kids. The other one got tested and took seven days to get the results back. He says this is unacceptable. We've got a whole video about why this is, where the ideology that's driving, this is beyond incompetence. This is actually ideological. A new video out about this, you can find it over at TomHartman.com. I guess we've kind of gone through uh, Trump's crimes and all that. I mean, let's just make it clear. He didn't just play down the virus. He said to Bob Woodward, I'm going to play it down because I don't want to create a panic. And again, I think what he was talking about was a stock market panic because he's tried to panic us in every other regard. And he believed, and I think correctly, that the stock market staying high was the key to his reelection. And now, now he's got Jerome Powell jacking the stock market through the Fed, you know, $7 trillion worth of stock and bond purchases. But he didn't just play it down. He denied its existence. He denied its danger. He called it a hoax that was being perpetrated by the Democratic Party. He explicitly said, don't wear a mask, and he wasn't going to. He promoted things like hydroxychloroquine that not only don't work, but increase your risk of a heart attack. He blamed China. He blamed the CDC. He pulled us out of the World Health Organization. He took absolutely no responsibility for this. 
Um, he was questioning his medical experts. And then on top of that, he had these giant rallies. And now we're discovering that his uh, political appointee, Michael Caputo, a Trump campaign official who has no medical background, no scientific background, no public health background, was put into the Department of Health and, Her and Human Services way back in April. You wonder why HHS and the CDC, why, you know, Rachel Maddow did several shows about this. Why did the CDC go from having very strict guidelines to protect people in meatpacking plants to having recommendations that were watered down to begin with? She kept asking why. Why is this happening? I don't think she ever got a good answer to it. I would say maybe it has to do with Michael Caputo. And there have been all kinds of reports coming out of HHS, coming out of CDC, coming out of other agencies underneath HHS, Health and Human Services, suggesting that basically, you know, they are they're messing with science and they're doing it to keep uh, to keep Trump's popularity up. Trump apparently believes that the extent to which he can pretend that there's no problem. And the stock market's up, have you noticed? that he's going to get reelected, And Robert Redfield has been doing the same thing. I just find the whole thing just shocking. New information out, by the way, this is fascinating, is from NBC News. They did studies of people, this is the CDC, speaking of the CDC, not something that got widely publicized, but it was published, actually. They looked at people in California, Colorado, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, Utah, and Washington. And they asked people, half the people tested positive, half of them didn't, but they had similar, basically, lifestyles. And the one thing that they found that was twice as likely to happen, they asked them a whole bunch of things, you know, okay, from the people who didn't get COVID and the people who did get COVID, you know, did you go to stores? Did you wear a mask? Were you indoors? Were you, did you have contact with anybody who was infected? You know, and so, the, you know, they had this whole big data set. And then they, they, they ran through the data and, and identified people who had COVID and people who didn't have COVID who had basically done all the same things. They had all gone to the store, they had all worn a mask, they had all, you know, whatever it may be, or they didn't wear a mask, but they all did the same thing. And then they said, what's the difference between these two groups? Was it that they went to the theater? No, it turns out it wasn't that. Was it that they, and maybe that's just because there weren't enough theater visitors to make a data set. You know, was it because they went to the supermarket and uh, didn't wear a mask? No, it wasn't that. What was it? Well, it was dining out. This from uh, a piece by uh, Appalachia Blue over Democratic Underground. Both, uh, actually, this is, uh, that's who posted this. Actually, this is by Erica Edwards with NBC News. Quote, NBC News, both groups generally reported similar activities, such as going to church, gyms, and stores, with one exception, going out to eat or having drinks at a bar or coffee shop. Those who tested positive for COVID-19 were approximately twice as likely to have reported dining at a restaurant than those who had negative test results. Those who were diagnosed without any known exposure to the virus were more likely to report having visited a bar or coffee shop in the previous two weeks. And I believe it's Florida. The bars are reopening. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's Texas. But there's, there's, you know, one of these red states, the bars are reopening. I mean, you know, this is, this is absolutely nuts. Oh, by the way, last thing here I wanted to share with you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls after the break. 
The Kamala Harris-Mike Pence vice presidential debate, it's going to be moderated by Susan Page. She is the Washington bureau chief for USA Today. Well, that sounds good, right? Except that she hosted a girls' night at her home back in November to honor Seema Verma, the the, uh, administrator of uh, Medicare and Medicaid services, Trump's top Medicaid official. Taxpayers paid about three grand for the party. Verma has a long history with Pence going back to his time as governor of Indiana. Amazing. Uh, Girls' night out for an administration official. That's going to be who's going to moderate the debate with Mike Pence. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And meanwhile, as far as I know, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is still holding up the ballots, and now they're trying to do something like this in Pennsylvania. We'll be back with your calls after this. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Today we're reading The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence by Michael D'Antonio. This is from the first chapter. For decades, Pence had presented himself as a humble servant who could be entrusted with power because he was at heart a mild-mannered Midwesterner. Friends and foes alike said his major character trait was extreme niceness. When given the opportunity, Pence described himself as a true Hoosier, son of Indiana, who was a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. This is how he had introduced himself to the country at the Republican National Convention six months earlier. The list contrasted with the usual pledge politicians make to put country first. This is what President Obama did after the 2016 election when he said, We are not Democrats first, we are not Republicans first, we are Americans first. The vice president's self-declared identity revealed both his priorities and the source of his power. For 30 years, he had helped lead the Republican Party into a closer alliance with preachers who were turning evangelical Christianity from a religion into a political crusade that engaged in a culture war with non-believers. 
The aim of many was to destroy abortion rights, roll back the equality gained by gay citizens, and prepare the nation for the second coming of Christ. Pence and others used martial metaphors and considered themselves warriors of the Christian right, both besieged and called upon to fight. Quote, those who would have us ignore the battle being fought over life, marriage, and religious liberty have forgotten the lessons of history, said Pence in 2010. America's darkest moments have come when economic arguments trumped moral principles. Pence's allies in his war included hugely wealthy donors who, despite their vast wealth accumulated at a time of historic inequality, also posed as victims. As libertarians in the mold of Ayn Rand's cardboard characters, they felt inhibited in the pursuit of even greater riches by a government that imposed foolish regulations and would redistribute their wealth to the supposedly indolent poor. Starting with this perspective, they denied the science behind environmental protection, demanded tax cuts for themselves, and insisted on massive reductions in programs serving anyone who wasn't rich. The victimhood claimed by both the libertarians and the Christian right permitted the construction of an alternative reality that denied their own power and masked their ambition to make politics and culture conform to an ideology that included white Christian supremacy and predatory capitalism. It also denied the progress they had made in their construction of their own political might. With his oath of office, Vice President Pence became both the free marketer's hero and the most successful Christian supremacist in American history. Most of Pence's life had been preparation for this moment, and possibly one more. His lifelong goal, set when he was a boy, was the Oval Office itself. Remarkably, he had reached this point by tying his fate to Donald J. Trump, a man whose immorality in the form of lying, cheating, and deceiving in every aspect of his life, from his marriage to his businesses, had made him a living exemplar of everything that Christianity and conservatism abhorred. However, this record also suggested that Pence was more likely to assume the highest office in the land than most vice presidents who had come before. To put it bluntly, Trump was vulnerable to impeachment. If this occurred, Pence would see the hand of God at work in his elevation to the presidency. In the meantime, he would wait and watch. On Inauguration Day, with Pence looking on, a slightly stooped Donald Trump stepped forward when it was his turn to face the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts. Beside Trump stood his wife, Melania, the former fashion model, who held two Bibles, Lincoln's and Trump's own. At the stroke of noon, the president-elect raised his right hand and placed his left on the Bibles. As he did this, Trump's family members and hundreds of political and government figures strained to see the moment. Trump and Pence were a study in contrast. At age 58, Pence appeared trim, perhaps even athletic, and could have passed for a man 10 years younger. His jacket was neatly buttoned, his hands were clasped at his waist, and his smooth face was set in a half-smile. In sum, he resembled a small-town pastor, or maybe even a funeral director. Mere feet away, a stern-faced 70-year-old Trump stood with his coat hanging open like a caftan to reveal a long red necktie. Despite much cosmetic intervention, he looked old and tired. At the conclusion of the presidential oath, which had been voiced by 44 presidents before him, Trump said the words, so help me God, and accepted the congratulations of those closest to him with a thin-lipped, toothless grin. He then delivered a 15-minute speech replete with distortions and falsehoods that were his trademark. He declared that America was awash with crime and despair and under constant attack. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now, said Trump. It was the most remembered phrase of the address. That was some weird 
S-word. Former President George W. Bush was heard to remark as he left the inaugural stand. Weird was the mildest word that one could attach to the 45th President of the United States as he launched an administration that would be stained by scandal and corruption so broad it defied a citizen's ability to grasp. Cronyism, secrecy, and nepotism would flourish. Presidential lies daily cataloged by the Washington Post and others would come at the rate of more than 150 per month. From the moment of his oath, Mike Pence, the vice president, faced the historic, some would say daunting, challenge of dealing with an erratic and undisciplined commander-in-chief. The book, The Shadow President, The Truth About Mike Pence. Another story here that I want to share with you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. Of course, we know now that when the CDC came out a week or so ago and said, you know, if you have been around somebody with COVID, but you don't feel sick, you don't need to get tested. And all over the country, scientists were going, what the hell? What fool said that? Well, it turns out, apparently the fool who said that was Dr. Atlas in the White House, perhaps with uh, the help of Mike Pence and Jared Kushner. Because it certainly wasn't the scientists at the Centers for Disease Control. They were not even informed. It was put on the website. When they objected, they were told, you know, tough luck. Just the same, the same message that Trump gives to people on Social Security when he says, if I get reelected, Social Security is dead in three years. And people go, what about, what about us? And he goes, hey, to hell with you. This is the official Republican position, right? Unemployed people. Hey, you know, we need some help here. Mitch McConnell, screw you guys. I mean, pick your Republican senator. Every single one of them except Mitt Romney well, even Mitt Romney, in some regards, depending on the legislation, is basically saying to the American people, go jump off a, off, a, off a cliff. Because the Republicans know that they don't need us. All they need is another large check from the Koch Network or another large check from, those, from a, you know, the Bradley Foundation, the Scaife Foundation, or another large check for, from you know, Shelley Adelson or, an, or you know, a little extra help on Facebook coming out of Saudi Arabia or Russia or, or Israel. I mean, th- that's all they need. They know that. They don't care about you and me. They're sitting around laughing at us. Yeah, we're going to own the libs. (laughs) Right. Those people on Social Security, they, you know, they're they're such a voting block. We're going to make it tough on them. And those black people, we'll just just pull their voter registrations. Have you double-checked your voter registration? It's real easy. The DNC put up a website called IWillVote.org, I believe it is. Might be .com. Check it out. You'll, you should be able to find it. Might, it should be both. Right? Typically, when you get a domain, you get both and you cross both. You point them at each other. Um, but it's called I Will Vote. And with a single button, you can check your voter registration. And I am hearing, and I've seen uh, several people on Twitter have uh, tweeted to me about this, that literally just in the last couple of weeks, their voter status has gone from active to inactive. In other words... Republican secretaries of state, or in some cases, apparently the Republican Party, they're doing caging. Now that the Supreme Court has said they can do this, they're mailing out postcards. If you don't send that postcard back, if you think it's spam mail, if they don't get it back, then they go to the secretary of state and say, hey, this postcard never got returned. These these people aren't here. Take them off the voting rolls. 
So double check your voter status. And, and the last story I want to share with you, and then we're going to hit this break and I'll pick up your phone calls. But there's a bunch of stuff going on out here that I think is really, really important to talk about. Uh, number one, I was talking about how Republican sites are actually talking about encouraging Republicans to go into voting polling places without masks and cough a lot. Well, this, this comes out of St. Louis. Uh, St. Charles County Election Authority sent an email to poll workers yesterday, quote, uh, saying you don't have to wear a mask. Quote, you may act surprised that you don't have a face mask on properly and then apologize as you put the mask on. Wear your mask correctly until the voter leaves the polling place. Please do this every time a voter says something to you. In other words, if you walk into a polling place in Missouri and the people aren't wearing masks and you ask them to wear a mask, then they will do that for a short while. Isn't that sweet? And finally, Dana Rohrbacker, apparently a, member of, a Republican member of Congress at the time, apparently reached out to Julian Assange and said, if you can help cover up the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia on Hillary's emails, then we will help you out, Mr. Assange. Are you getting this? What's going on here? I thought that was called treason. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls in just a moment. The hidden history of the war on voting tells how the GOP has been stealing elections for decades and will again this year, unless we stop them. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Well, France just announced that they have been paying 84% of your salary. Right. There's there's France is not having an, uh, an unemployment crisis like we are uh, because the government just writes a check directly to the citizens. They know where everybody is and who everybody is and what their circumstances are because they've got a national health care service. And, you know, so they've got a basically a database, well, probably also through their tax base. But, uh, you know, they're they're just paying money directly to people. Eighty four. You get 84 percent of your old paycheck. So if you know if you were making you know hundred thousand dollars a year, you're now getting eighty four thousand dollars a year. If you were making ten thousand dollars a year, you're getting eighty four hundred dollars a year. And uh, they just said that they're going to extend this until next summer. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell is saying no, we will not extend anything for American laid off American workers. Nothing. Screw them. This is the official the official position of the Republican Party. When they tried to, to, and they're still trying to, the Supreme Court's going to decide this after the election. This was John Roberts' big, you know, s- s- wet kiss to, to Donald Trump, was that their lawsuit to end the Affordable Care Act will happen after the year. They, so they don't, you know, they, their, their attitude to people who are sick, their Republican attitude to people who are sick and need health care, screw, screw them. Uh, their attitude toward people who are on Social Security, Trump wants to make permanent eliminating the Social Security tax, which means the whole program is broke in three years. Uh, yeah, screw them. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, unemployed workers. Nah, screw them. I mean, that... <sighs> Anyhow, I'm blithering, and let's pick up your phone calls. Leslie in Central Square, New York. Hey, Leslie, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I was wondering 
what's your idea of what you're going to do when if Trump wins and he starts putting secret police on the streets and you have soldiers on every corner? Are you going to move or what are you, what are you going to do? Or I'd like to know. I'd like to get ideas because I was thinking of moving to Canada. They won't take you, Leslie. They just hit a guy with six months in jail and a multi-thousand dollar fine for sneaking into Canada. You know, I mean, he just drove across the border and, and was visiting some friends and came and dragged him out of the house and put him in jail. It's like, you, you know, Canada doesn't want us. Mexico doesn't want us. I mean, it, and, you know, your U.S. passport is not going to get you into most countries in the world right now because we've got a quarter of all the deaths and all the COVID cases on the entire planet. And we're only 4% of the world's population. So, you know, yeah. there's no place to go. What we have to do is stay here and fight for what we believe. And I don't think that that fight needs to be a violent one, but it certainly needs to be a political one. And it needs to be at a the process of education that's that's really in my opinion where we need to be going <clears throat> but thanks for the call paul in woodenville washington hey paul what's on your mind tom i have looked into this there is no such thing as herd immunity as a natural phenomenon herd immunity is a vaccination theory it was never intended as an either or 70 percent will either be vaccinated or let them get the disease no it's it's not a, it's not the way I got onto this is I started wondering because I have a degree in bioscience and I never remember sitting in a lecture at Michigan State, not even one, where the professor was talking about, oh, oh the wildebeest of South Central Africa in 1907 were struck with. A, no, I never heard one lecture like that. And so I started looking for where is the shining example of herd immunity? So as I got reading about it, it just says, no, it's a vaccination theory that was developed in the 30s when they observed small groups of children who'd had the measles, like, say, in a school, and realized that when the majority of the kids had had the measles, it didn't spread as fast. And so they concluded that if we can vaccinate 65 to 70 percent of the children, not let them get the disease, because you have to understand, any disease that you would develop a vaccine for is not a disease you want to run rampant. It's too deadly. It's too damaging. And the measles are. And so it's right. not a phenomenon, it's not a natural phenomenon that has ever occurred in nature or in any human populations. All the diseases that I can have looked up, the human populations from uh, the, the bubonic plague in England in 1664 back to the, the Black Plague in, in the 14th, or, yeah, 14th century to the Justinian Plague in Rome in the 6th century, these all wiped out a third of the population. There has never been a herd immunity phenomena in nature. This is not an, it's a vaccination theory. That's what we're talking about, vaccines. And that number, 70%, that can float because it's dependent on the, the constant of how virulent and how contagious the disease is. That could go up to maybe 85 right. or 90% with coronavirus. And how persistent the immunity is. I mean, you know, we've, most, most all of us get a coronavirus infection every year. In fact, most of us get it a couple of times. And I can tell you, Paul, Paul, from personal experience, when you've got kids in school or grandkids in preschool, 
you start getting these coronavirus infections multiple times a year, and they are called the common cold. And the reason that you get it over and over and over again is because the, there are literally dozens of mutations of that particular virus every single year. And immunity to one does not mean immunity to another. And now we've got this guy in Las Vegas who, who definitely had it had the Asian strain, got sick with it, was diagnosed, recovered, tested negative for months, then was exposed to the European strain, and they even know who exposed him, and he got sick again, and the second time he got sick, he had to be hospitalized again. I mean, this is how this... I, I, I'm speechless. I'm speechless. Yeah, Paul, I, thank I, you I for... Know, Tom, I, 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 I taught. I taught school, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and every teacher knows about that but the idea the the notion that the the strategy is without a vaccine to just allow the population to become infected has never ever ever been a theory of managing disease never so the 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 herd immunity so-called and you know we think of it as a natural phenomenon because herd oh that's just uh, four-legged animals that, that that live in herds no, no, it's never been a natural thing. That's what's confused me. Where are the shining examples, I wondered, and I didn't find any. And then I found out, oh, this is a vaccination theory. It's not a natural phenomenon. And that's what Donald Trump is basically throwing up his hands and abandoning America to death. And by saying, oh, I heard it to Herd mentality. Well, the herd it mentality goes beyond that, Paul. Donald Trump it goes beyond that. I, I believe that he is using this as a, as, a, uh, as a strategy to hold power. And I think that this, this uh, specter that, uh, that Jim uh, sent me a note on this morning, um, that there's all this buzz right now on Facebook about uh, Republicans who are planning to go to polling places without masks, loudly coughing to discourage Democrats from voting. Right. You, you take that and then, I'll, I'll, you know, as at the same time that that meme is out there, now we have the, a, a, new, a brand new meme. And this just got rolled out yesterday by the Republicans, by, you know, by the conservatives, and apparently got rolled out in multiple media. And that is that anybody who wears a mask is a sissy. Any, any man who wears a mask is actually kind of like a woman. You know, he's, he's a sissy. And you don't want to be a sissy. Nobody wants to be a sissy. And so yesterday, Rush Limbaugh said, and I quote, there's a whole lot of people fed up with the chickification of our culture. And it's not anything to do with anti-woman or anti-feminism or anti-female. And, and, you know, it has to do with the fact that there's an assault on manhood. And this is wearing masks. The Daily Caller, the, the lead story. The Democratic Party is now the party of women and those who identify with the overly feminine sensibility. There's nothing wrong with this being your cup of tea, of course, but Democrats shouldn't be surprised when young men of all stripes are turned off by a party that is completely devoid of any masculine energy. And then uh, over at the Outkick, uh, the return of Big Ten football is a win for Trump and American masculinity. As long as Trump looks masculine and not weak, he wins. Almost certainly Wednesday's development will help tr- impact Trump's approval rating in the Midwest. That's talking about the Big Ten. And then here's another one. The, this is from the American conservative. Uh, the headline, the NFL and bumper sticker totalitarianism. The woke are everywhere on T-shirts, window signs, commercial school board meetings, supposedly neutral no- news coverage, literature out. Now they're out there scrimmaging on the gridiron. So, you know, yeah, don't wear a mask. Show up at the polling place. Cough a lot. Scare away those Democrats. Don't let them vote. I see this coming. Maybe the Trump administration could start offering testosterone injections. But you can can count me in as being a sissy, Tom. Thank you. I'd like to be as smart as a woman. I wish I were. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and, you know, <laughs> I'm just imagining that little audio clip, Paul, being pulled out of this show and replayed. Um, I, it's just, I, this is just mind-boggling. Uh, it, it's, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, for, for men who feel emasculated, for men who have lost their jobs, for men who feel like they can't provide for their families now, this is a way of reaching out to them by, by the Republicans who are largely responsible for their losing their jobs. The kabuki theater of, oh, the other countries are lying about their statistics to these people didn't really die of coronavirus. They had underlying conditions and they died of something else. Well, you know what? My wife then, she didn't die of breast cancer. She died of a, she died of a, a respiratory arrest. And my sister didn't die of some untreatable, bizarre cancer. She died of a cardiac arrest. So nobody died of any. And honestly, Tom, the coronavirus doesn't do anything to you except whack out your, your uh, immune system physiology. So, no, nobody died of anything. The coronavirus isn't alive. It's a virus that makes your body go haywire. When Donald Trump told Bob Woodward it's 5% deadly, well, that was apparent in the statistics. I've been keeping and I've been keeping a national st- uh, statistic that says, yeah, we're right around 56 to 5.96% fatalities. And But I was accepting that Rush Limbaugh said, remember, oh, this thing's just about 2% deadly. That's nothing. Well, listen, 5% death rate is not five times more deadly than the flu. It's 50 times because, as you said, Tom, the flu is only about, the death rate is about one-tenth of 1%. So when Rush Limbaugh said it's, Two percent—that's twenty percent more deadly than the flu. And we talked on this program about the things you wouldn't do on a daily basis if they had a two percent fatality rate. Like you wouldn't drive your car only to work and home; otherwise, you'd be dead twice by April eighth. You know, in a year. That, right. So right. what we were told was bad enough. I don't know why he's saying Trump didn't lie. What has happened has been bad enough. Well, it's so tribalism, no as I said. I, you know, yeah, yeah. I get it, Paul. I get it. Your, your your points are very well made, as usual. What an amazing time we're living through, huh? I mean, at a certain point, you just kind of have to step back a little bit and look out and go, "Wow, this is incredible." We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I mean, it, it might be tough. It might be terrible. I know there's, you know, literally millions of Americans who are who are afraid that they're on the edge of homelessness, and it's incredible. So we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com for uh, people who are signed up. And it's about how Donald Trump, 16 days after Mr. Khashoggi was murdered by the Saudis in Turkey and his body dismembered and vanished, 16 days after that happened, without notifying Congress and with virtually no mention to anybody, Donald Trump authorized the transfer of top secret nuclear technology to the Saudis. This should be a serious issue. Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, is raising hell about it because Khashoggi lived in Virginia. But I think everybody in Congress should be raising hell about this. And when you back this up with this new report out from ProPublica that the Saudis were involved in 9-11, it gets real interesting. So you can check that out over at TomHartman.com. You know, look for our basically members-only video. 
So I have a modest proposal for you. I, I confess this is not something that I came up with. It's not. This was not a, a moment of uh, of my brilliance. I actually read this in in the news uh, over on Gizmodo, as a matter of fact. But just follow me on this for a minute. Okay, you, you had a bunch of right-wing crazies and racists and haters show up with their little prosthetic penises uh, in, their, in their hands, you know, their, their guns, at the Michigan State Capitol without masks. Well, what Indonesia has done is, because they're having so many deaths there, they were having to dig a lot more graves than normal. And so what, and you know, they have a mask mandate in Jakarta. And so what they're doing is when you are caught without a mask in public, instead of being given a ticket or sent to jail or arrested or anything like that, because there is a, a fine in jail time if you're a real, you know, kind of repeat offender type. Um, what they're doing is they're, they're uh, requiring these people to dig graves for people who died of COVID-19 get busted without a mask, become a grave digger. Honest to God, at least eight people who have refused to wear masks during the coronavirus pandemic have been forced to dig graves for people who died from COVID-19 in Indonesia, according to the Jakarta Post. The article notes that the anti-maskers who are being punished are not forced to handle the dead bodies, but are instead doing the manual labor of digging graves and preparing the plots with wooden planks to support the caskets. Uh, they say that there's no risk of exposure to the bodies. They're uh, putting the bodies in full body, uh, or the, the people who are doing this work are wearing full body protective equipment. Indonesia has had 222,000 cases. That's uh, fewer than a tenth of what we have, and uh, fewer than a fifth of what we have, and 8,841 deaths. We have now, this weekend, we're going to have 200,000 dead people. That's a lot of graves to dig. And, you know, we've got a lot of people who are refusing to wear masks. So I think that this is a reasonable starting point. What do you think? Jonathan in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jonathan. Dr. Deborah Brooks made two important points during several White House press conferences a long time ago, and she's been reiterating them. But the first thing is regarding herd immunity. She specifically said that the term herd immunity was always used when it comes to vaccination. No one would use that term in general, and especially when discussing a pandemic and letting a pandemic run out with a level of mortality that they see associated with comorbidities. So the, 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 the right. term herd immunity is, in her use, is specifically... Which is the point our caller Paul made. Yeah, spot on. Well, he wasn't making quite that point. He was saying that there was no science behind it, and it, and it was, you know, uh, but no, but he, he was saying it was only it had only been applied to u the use of vaccines to hit some certain threshold where you don't need the, you know, you don't need to vaccinate 100 percent of people. Uh, you know, if the vaccine is 70 percent effective and you vaccinate 90 percent of the people you've got or if it's 90 percent effective and you vaccinate 70 percent of the people, uh, you know, you'll slow or stop the transmission of the disease. And that's what they're calling herd immunity. But, uh, you know, he pointed out there is no place in science where that term or even that idea has ever been applied to a virus. Exactly. In the wild, but, you, but you don't need to do a lot of research for that. She's been repeatedly saying that publicly. But the other Great. thing is that she points out at, regarding testing, there's an important point that people don't understand. The tests are not 100 percent sensitive. And um, if you have a 1 percent of the population is infected and the test um, is only 99% specific, 
that means that when you find a positive, 50% of the time it will only be a real positive and 50% of the time it won't be. So that's why she's saying that... Well, that depends uh, on the bias of the test, Jonathan. You know, they, what, what they'll do is let me they'll... Finish my they'll... Sentence. Let me just finish okay, my sentence. Finish. That's why she's saying that, that um, she's asking for testing to be done among first responders and healthcare workers we ha- where they have the greatest exposure because that's where the test will be most reliable. So um, there's a distinct difference between testing a general population and testing a population that you think is highly infected. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, where I was going, I guess it's, it's pretty irrelevant, but, you know, the bias. So you, you get a test that, that has maybe 5% false positives and 95% false negatives or vice versa or whatever. There's, there's a whole spectrum, and, and you can kind of move the slider around on that as to how you, how you use those tests and how you... But, but, but yeah, I get your point. I'll have to go back and look for. Uh, when was the last time Burke said that? Do you know? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. It was a White House press conference, and it looks like the date was April twentieth, twenty twenty. For twenty twenty. Okay. Yep. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm writing it down. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. John Harvin here with you. Bergamo, Italy is a town of about 120,000 people in the uh, Lombardy region of Italy. And my apologies if you're Italian and I'm mispronouncing any of this. And they've got one major hospital in town, and that hospital, of course, this is this was part of the uh, the Lombardy region was hard hit by the coronavirus, and Italy was hard hit, and lots and lots of people died, and so now they're calling their survivors, they're calling the people who were diagnosed with COVID, who uh, might have just come to the hospital to get a test, or came into the hospital to to get oxygen, or even were intubated, they're calling them back and saying, "How are you doing?" This is from a piece in the Washington Post. It's by Chico Harlan. It's titled, Italy's Bergamo is calling back coronavirus survivors. About half say they haven't fully recovered. That's the headline. And they point out the hospital is calling back its survivors. It's drawing their blood, examining their hearts, scanning their lungs, asking them about their lives. How are you feeling? A doctor recently asked the next patient to walk in, a 54-year-old who can't climb a flight of stairs without losing her breath. I feel like I'm 80 years old, the woman said. Serena Venturelli, an infectious disease specialist at the hospital, says, We're asking people, are you feeling cured? Almost half the patients say no. Among the first 750 patients screened, 30% still have lung scarring and breathing problems, and another 30% have heart abnormalities and artery blockages. That's 60%. A few of them are at risk of organ failure. Many patients months later 
This is the Pope, this is the Pope John the 23rd Hospital. Many patients months later are dealing with a galaxy of daily conditions and have no clear answer on when it will all sub- subside, if ever. Leg pain, tim- tingling in the extremities, hair loss, depression, severe fatigue. And we're not talking about old people here. They died. Some patients had pre-existing conditions, but doctors say these survivors are not experiencing a new version of old problems. We're talking about something new altogether, said Marco Rizzi, the head of the hospital's infectious disease unit. One patient, Giuseppe Vavasori, has developed short-term memory loss and now lives under a mountain of post-it notes and handwritten reminders with names and phone numbers so he can still run his funeral home business. A post-covert MRI showed dot-like lesions in his brain. Another, Guido Padoa, recovered well enough that he was able to go on vacation this summer, but he sleeps four extra hours every night and sometimes falls asleep in the middle of the day, head on his computer keyboard. Some patients who were self-reliant before contracting the virus remain so weakened that when they arrive for their follow-up appointments, these are the recovered people. They no longer have the virus. That when they show up for their appointments, they have to be helped to the waiting room by relatives or in wheelchairs. And, you know, it it just goes on from there. I I refer you to the Washington Post, this piece by uh, Chico Harlan. It's mind-boggling. 60% of the survivors are still seriously screwed up from this thing. This is one nasty, nasty disease. And Donald Trump knew that in January and lied to us right up to this day. And now he's saying, oh yeah, well, I was lying because I don't want to start a panic. That's leadership. But at the same time, he's like, oh, by the way, white people in the suburbs, look out! It's pretty friggin' breathtaking. Meanwhile, virus cases rise among school-aged children in Florida. The state orders some counties to keep data hidden. That's the, uh, the headline in the Seattle Times. One month into the forced reopening of Florida's schools, dozens of classrooms, along with entire schools, have been temporarily shuttered. Infections among school-aged children have jumped 34% in Florida. Ron DeSantis has ordered counties to stop publishing their information. Florida Department of Health reported 10,513 children under age 18 had tested positive. And he ordered counties and the school districts to stop publishing their information. So as a result, they're putting up secret Facebook pages and anonymous Twitter accounts. After the Duval County, this is from the Seattle Times article, after the Duval County School District in Northeast Florida published a coronavirus dashboard during the first week of school, the state ordered it shut down. In Orlando, the Orange County Health Department was told September 3rd to stop releasing information about coronavirus cases tied to their schools. The Florida Department of Health quickly removed their own school coronavirus information from public view. Martin County now has a 23% positivity rate for school-aged children. For every 100 kids that they test, 23 of them are testing positive. Glades County, west of Lake Okeechobee, has a positivity rate of nearly 30% since schools reopened. Florida, across the state, has 652,000 cases, 12,200 people dead. In Suwannee County, small rural county in northern Florida, under age 18, coronavirus positivity rate of 21.7%.
But don't worry, the governor's just not going to let you know about it. Meanwhile, a whistleblower, Brian Murphy, over at the Department of Homeland Security, this is the guy who was the chief of the Department of Homeland Security's intelligence branch. The most senior intelligence officer in the Department of Homeland Security. Chad Wolf, Kristen Nielsen, and Ken Cuccinelli on various occasions, all came to this guy and said, stop talking about Russia interfering in our elections because he was issuing reports because they're actually monitoring what's going on. And sure enough, it's happening. Stop talking about that. It makes the president uncomfortable. And stop talking about the threat of white supremacists. White supremacists have killed more people in this country in the last decade than Muslim terrorists, than, and than pretty much anybody else who's politically motivated. It's a major problem. And this whistleblower is saying, yeah, and we're, we're messing with our own intel. I mean, this is deeply, deeply wrong. And then a DHS agent, uh, you know, comes out and says that uh, he was forced to fake data on terrorists coming across the U.S.-Mexico border. This was back two years ago when Trump was trying to scare us all while he was, you know, he's the, the let's not panic the people guy was saying, there's caravans of brown people, rapists and murderers coming to America. And, and he was forcing this guy through, uh, in discussions with Secretary Nielsen, Mr. Wolf and Mr. Taylor and Mr. Marquat, to say that there's a lot of known terrorists or suspected terrorists coming through the southern border. I mean, this is mind-boggling. This is absolutely mind-boggling. Oh, and, and it gets even more bizarre. The White House, the U.S. government, they're scrambling to do this. They're going to stop all screening of inbound passengers coming into the United States from foreign countries where we were screening them for COVID-19. We are the COVID-19 paradise, after all. We have one quarter of all the cases in the world. We're 4% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's COVID cases and 25% of the world's COVID deaths right here at home. The orders to cease pre-screening operations came from the White House with strict orders to keep the information secret, says Jana Winter, writing for Yahoo News. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Measuring What Counts, the Global Movement for Well-Being by Joe Stiglitz, Jean-Paul Fatusi, and Martine Duran. And this is from the first chapter labeled Overview. The high-level expert group on the measurement of economic performance and social progress, also known as HLEG, builds on the analyses and recommendations of the 2009 Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress, also known as the Stiglitz-Sen-Fatusi Commission, in highlighting the role of well-being metrics in policy and encouraging a more active dialogue among economic theory and statistical practice. The report makes explicit the often implicit assumptions hidden in statistical practices and their real-world consequences. Its central message is that what we measure affects what we do. If we measure the wrong thing, we will do the wrong thing. If we don't measure something, it becomes neglected, as if the problem didn't exist. 
There is no simple way of representing every aspect of well-being in a single number in the way GDP describes market economic output. This has led to GDP being used as a proxy for both economic welfare, like people's command over com commodities, and general welfare, which also depends on people's attributes and non-market activities. GDP was not designed for this task. We need to move beyond GDP when assessing a country's health and complement GDP with a broader dashboard of indicators that would reflect the distribution of well-being in society and its sustainability across the social, economic, and environmental dimensions. The challenge is to make the dashboard small enough to be easily comprehensible, but large enough to summarize what we care about the most. The 2008 crisis and its aftermath illustrate why a change in perspective is needed. The GDP loss that followed the crisis was not the temporary one-off event predicted by conventional macroeconomic models. Its effects have lasted over time, suggesting that the crisis caused the permanent loss of significant amounts of capital, not just machines and structures, but also hidden capital in the form of lower on-the-job training, permanent scars on young people entering the labor market during a recession, and lower trust in an economic system rigged to benefit a few. We should also look beyond inequality in outcomes to inequality of opportunity. Inequality of opportunity is even more unacceptable than inequality of outcomes, but the operational distinction between the two is fuzzy, as we don't observe all circumstances that shape people's outcomes and are independent of their efforts. The book Measuring What Counts by Joe Stiglitz and Friends. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.